It's February 2008, and winter still has an icy grip on the northwest of England. The village of Aspel lies 15 miles to the east of Manchester. It's home to a little under 5,000 people who go about their business like any other day. Today, though, a startling discovery will shine the spotlight of the national press on the sleepy village. It begins innocently enough. Decorator John Doherty has been contracted by the family of local resident Harvey Richardson. Richardson has recently lost his battle with bowel cancer, aged 77 at a care home in the nearby town of Wigan. Reservoir Street is a short row of 10 terraced houses on the outskirts of the village, looking out over fields still dusted with frost. Doherty and his young female apprentice have instructions to redecorate so the house can go on the market. They work fast, furniture scraping as they drag it away from walls into the center of each room, clearing the way to paint. Many of the rooms are filled with shelf after shelf of Richardson's passion, books. In some rooms, they're even stacked on the ground from floor to ceiling. He had been a trainee librarian many years ago and hung on to his love of literature all of his life. They start at the front, settling into a rhythm, creaking ladders, whisper of brushes against plaster. Before long, they only have the study left. The pair start by removing a wardrobe from an alcove. Setting it down, they notice a strap hanging over the side and tug at it. A heavy leather satchel bulging at the seams tumbles out. Doherty looks to his colleague, who shrugs. No harm in taking a peek. Could be something of value to pass on to the Richardson's relatives. The contents, as it turns out, are an unusual collection. They include an antique air pistol and a large number of envelopes, stuffed with what appear to be newspaper clippings. Curiosity gets the better of him and Doherty starts leafing through the clippings. Soon, he notices a common theme. They're all about the same story the murder of 19-year-old Lorraine Jacob that occurred on September 1st, 1970, 38 years ago. Jacob had gone out for a night in Liverpool with friends and was found dead early the next morning. The murder was never solved, and according to the cuttings, police had no suspects. Why would Richardson hoard such a bizarre library of articles, he wonders. The discovery takes a chilling turn when Doherty dips his hand back into the bag, coming out this time with a pair of blue women's underwear. He puts these aside and pulls out the final envelope. This one is different from the others. It's sealed. The words private and confidential are scrawled across it and what he guesses must be Richardson's writing, although it looks a little faded, as if written a long time ago. Spurred on by the strangeness of the press clippings, John Doherty opens the envelope, pulling out several sheets of paper yellowing around the edges. It turns out to be nine pages of A4 in all, filled with line after line of the same neat, precise handwriting as the envelope itself. It is unsigned and bears no date. Doherty begins to read. It's a story, horrifying if true, about a dark and rainy night in 1970. Lorraine Jacobs' last night on Earth. The letter ends with a revelation. 
Harvey Richardson appears to admit to killing the young woman in a drunken fit of rage. Doherty is stunned. By all accounts, Harvey Richardson was a shy, gentle man who mostly kept to himself. If the words in this apparent confession are true, his reputation as a mild-mannered librarian had been a facade, a mask that hit a violent reality. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Harvey Richardson, of the words he wrote before he died. It's about a chain reaction of events that led to a teenager tragically losing her life. A man whose mother tried to protect him from his own demons. A case that baffled police for decades as to who could have committed such a seemingly motiveless murder. About a young mother, her life cut short, and the children she left behind. And a secret that takes nearly 40 years to claw its way into the light. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. So who was Harvey Richardson really? And what actually happened to Lorraine Jacob that led to a night out with a friend ending in tragedy for her and the two children she left behind? To find out, we need to travel back almost four decades to the Liverpool of the 1970s and a fateful series of events that would see Lorraine Jacob left out on the sidewalk like a piece of discarded trash, staring up at stars she would never see again. Harvey Richardson is born in Rochdale, Northwest England, in December of 1930, into a respectable middle-class family. His father is a surgeon and radiologist at the local hospital, 
and Richardson is largely raised by his mother. Little is known of Richardson's childhood and early years, but later interviews with friends and family will confirm that he was a troubled soul. He suffers from mental health issues throughout his life, and his family are fiercely protective of him. It's his mother who secures him his house on Reservoir Street, placing it into trust so he'll always have somewhere to live after she's gone. Her dying wish is an ask to his remaining family that they watch over him, helping him come to terms with life without her, even though he himself is 64 when she passes away in 1994. In 1959, age 29, Richardson moves to Liverpool to pursue his love of books and gets a job in a library. The next decade sees him bounce between here and Manchester. He drifts between a range of jobs. As well as a brief period as a trainee librarian, he has a stint in the hospitality industry as a waiter and barman, eventually taking his librarian exams in 1970 at Liverpool College of Commerce. In contrast to the colorful fashions of the era, Richardson looks every inch the librarian he strives to become. At around 5'6", He's not a tall man. And coupled with his sensible side parting and dark-rimmed glasses, he's someone who blends into the background, rather than standing out from the crowd. But in the summer of 1970, a new hobby he's taken up as an amateur photographer will get him noticed by none other than Lorraine Jacob. It's mid-June 1970, and the city of Liverpool, England, takes tentative steps towards summer. The stage is set for Lorraine Jacob and Harvey Richardson to cross paths, in the first of a tragic series of events that will culminate less than three months later in Lorraine Jacob's murder. Harvey Richardson rents a house on Huskisson Street in Toxteth, to the south of the city centre, close enough to the soccer stadium, Anfield, that on a good day, the roar of the crowd can be heard like a rumbling storm. Richardson is out for the day, so he's not there to see two young ladies approach his front door. One of them is 19-year-old mother of two, Lorraine Jacob, who lives a mile away in her mother's house on Russell Street. She's a young black woman, slight of build, whose usually kind face is now crinkled into a concerned frown. Lorraine is highly protective of her two little ones, both under two years old, and she's here to confront Richardson about some disturbing rumors she's heard. She's been told that Richardson has been spotted taking pictures of her children. There is no evidence to suggest that said photos were inappropriate, but the thought of a strange man taking photos of her kids without her permission is enough to fire up her protective maternal instincts, and she's determined to have it out with him. Lorraine knocks, no answer. She knocks again, this time louder, more insistent. Her banging is enough to draw attention. Soon, Richardson's landlord, who lives just next door, comes to investigate. Richardson is out, he explains, telling the two ladies they'll have to come back later. Jacob doesn't want the hassle of a second trip here, so tries a different, less aggressive tack than she had in mind for Richardson himself. She tells the landlord that they're friends of his, spins him a line about how they were meant to meet him here and how Harvey just must be running late. He's taken in by their warm smiles and easy manner and opens up Richardson's door, telling them they can wait inside. As soon as the landlord disappears though, Lorraine Jacob and her friends set to work. They go room to room through cupboards and drawers searching for his camera. It's a quick and messy affair, no attempt to conceal their search and soon enough, 
they strike gold. Jacob slips the camera into her bag and the two depart, glancing over their shoulders as they hurry away in case the landlord is watching or Richardson himself should return. Hours later, Richardson comes home to a chaotic scene. Cushions scattered, drawers left hanging out like half-open mouths. His initial fear is that he's been burgled and he immediately goes next door to report it to his landlord before he calls the police. He listens with interest as the landlord tells him of the two young ladies, supposed friends of his, how they sweet-talked their way in. Richardson recognizes Lorraine Jacob from the description as a local resident he's seen around the streets. He silently seethes as the landlord mutters an apology. At least he knows who he's looking for, even if he doesn't know where she lives. Two and a half months pass without incident, until Tuesday, the 1st of September. It's not a good day for Richardson, who discovers he has failed his librarian exams and is in a black mood. Lorraine, by contrast, is looking forward to a rare night out with friends. Her mother will look after the kids to give Lorraine a much-needed chance to let her hair down. She kisses 14-month-old Karen and infant Tony and heads out, oblivious to the fact she'll never see them or her mother again. She meets friends at Yates Wine Lodge on Great Charlotte Street around 8 p.m. They spend several hours there before Lorraine is spotted in a Chinese takeaway on Great George Street around 10.20. The third and final sighting by a member of the public who will later come forward is of Lorraine walking alone down the cobbles of Pilgrim Street around 11 p.m. She was heading home for the evening, clutching three bags of fries, presumably to share a late supper with her mother. It's the last time anyone but her killer will see her alive. It's September 2nd, 1970. A light misting of rain drifts across Liverpool city center. It's approaching 8 a.m. and locals bustle through slick streets on their way to work, many with faces hidden beneath bobbing umbrellas or obscured by hoods. Just another run-of-the-mill Wednesday in Northwest England. Roads start to fill like clogged arteries and somewhere in the distance, the low grumble of the garbage truck picking its way through back alleys and side streets can be heard. Rows of metal garbage cans line up along slippery streets. The rumbling of the engine grows louder, and the truck carefully navigates into the narrow alleyway that runs behind Rodney Street. A trio of garbage men zip back and forth behind it, like worker bees, hefting the corrugated metal bins up onto their shoulder, dumping the contents, then dropping them with a clang back onto the cobbles. It's a rhythm that gets them through bad days like this when they're soaked to the bone, clothes clinging like a second skin. One of them glances up. Something catches his eye. He does a double take, blinking away the rain that drips from his wet hair. It looks like a pair of feet sticking out from an adjoining alley. He slaps a hand on the side of the truck, calling to the driver to stop, and trots ahead. Probably just a drunk, sleeping off last night's session. Or a homeless man, maybe. No place else to spend the night. He gets closer, close enough to see it's not a man at all, but a young woman lying on her back, stretched out as if sleeping. Her hair and clothes are soaked through, bags of uneaten fries lying scattered on the sidewalk next to her. Rainwater runs like tears down her cheeks from pools that have gathered in unseeing eyes. He realizes almost instantly 
that she's dead. Horrified, he cries out to his colleagues, beckoning them over. The driver hops out too, and the four men stand in stunned silence for a few seconds, staring at the body, before one of them finally has the presence of mind to go find a phone box and call the police. Officers arrive and seal off the scene. A number of things are immediately apparent. Bruising around her throat suggests she has been strangled. Her tights and underwear are missing, indicating that the young lady was sexually assaulted. The body is soon confirmed as that of 19-year-old Lorraine Marguerite Jacob. Tragically, the spot where she's been found is only a third of a mile from her house. Another five minutes, and she could have been home safely, waking up with her family. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. When police go to move Lorraine, they find that the ground underneath her is dry. This allows them to narrow the time of death to anywhere between 11 p.m. and 3 a.m. when the rain started. The initial net police cast for witnesses yields nothing solid, although several give a similar description of a man seen in the area around the time Lorraine was spotted. They issue a photo fit and description of a man reported to be around five feet, six inches tall, dark hair, and aged between 45 and 50. Not exactly conclusive, but it's a start. Police speculate due to the crime scene's proximity to the red light district that Lorraine may have been mistaken for a sex worker. Perhaps she was propositioned by someone who took rejection badly and became violent? Another theory is that it was a case of mistaken identity after a drunken night out. Investigators also believe the missing underwear and tights could be crucial. If the killer has taken these as trophies, it could help build a solid case when they find him. The murder makes the headlines and police throw significant manpower at the case. Sadly, Despite taking more than 900 statements and putting out requests for information in over 3,500 pubs, clubs, and homes, there are no leads. Authorities even make an appeal that is shown to a packed Anfield stadium during a match between Liverpool and Manchester United. 50,000 pairs of eyes watch the plea to help catch Lorraine's killer. It's all in vain though, and after a high-profile start to the investigation, the case runs out of steam and soon slips out of the public eye. And for most of the world, that's where it'll remain. Out of sight, out of mind. Lorraine's family are the exception, who spend the next few decades desperately hoping that one day justice will be served. Her children grow up, raised by their grandmother. Richardson, by contrast, gets over the disappointment of his failed exams and decides to pursue another passion of his, languages. Now 40 years old, he enrolls as a mature student, learning German at Manchester University between 1972 and 1975, during which he spends six months in Germany. After his return to England, he meets his partner and has two children, Edith and Mary. All in all, he leads a fairly ordinary life, blending into the background, more of a loner than a social butterfly. 
Friends and neighbors described him as quiet. His daughters care for him in his later years. Edith was quoted after his death as saying, he was a quiet sort of person. He didn't want to put anyone out. But if you got him talking on the subjects he loved, like languages or history, he would chat for hours. Richardson's peaceful life is shattered when in 2008, he is diagnosed with terminal bowel cancer. The beginning of the end of what on the outside appears to be a fairly unremarkable life. It's January 2008. Harvey Richardson lies in his bed in the Wigan care home where he spends most of his days now. He knows he doesn't have long left. He has battled cancer for some years now, and it's finally clear that he's losing the fight. The days drift past, and from his reclined position, he can't even watch the world go by outside. He's trapped with his thoughts, and as the end approaches, it's easy to imagine that those thoughts might turn to an envelope stashed safely in his house, filled with secrets waiting to be unleashed. September 1st, 1970, is a day that must live in Harvey Richardson's ailing mind in vivid technicolor. The week before he took a series of exams to become a fully qualified librarian. In the meantime, he's floated between jobs, waiting tables at the Mariner's Restaurant and Yates Wine Lodge. On September 1st, Richardson goes to get his results early in the day, but it's not the outcome he was hoping for. Richardson is devastated to find out that he has failed. He has wrestled with his own mental health demons for years, and the news causes him to spiral, setting his day onto a very different path from what it would have been had he passed. He starts drinking early, drowning his sorrows in an assortment of bars. Alone, he downs pint after pint, trying to wash away his disappointment. For hours, Richardson sits with his thoughts, wondering what he'll do next. Bar work pays the bills, but it's not what he wants to do with his life. It's a little before 11 when he drains the last of his drink and slides out of his seat to wander into the night. The sky is dark with the moon tucked behind a heavy blanket of cloud. Richardson heads along Upper Duke Street, where he stops to talk to a pair of ladies plying their trade on a street corner, his female friends, as he calls them. It goes no further than a conversation, and he continues on his way. Off in the distance, a church clock chimes 11 as he turns onto Pilgrim Street. Up ahead, he sees a lone figure clutching what looks to be several bags of fries. He closes the gap and she glances around. He recognizes the face. It's Lorraine Jacob, the one he's pretty sure stole his camera a few months back. Richardson falls into step with her and sees the disappointment on her face when she sees who it is. I'm on my way home, Lorraine tells him. My mother is waiting for supper. She holds up her food as if to prove a point. Lorraine tries to quicken her stride, but Richardson matches it easily and broaches the subject of his camera. He stays with her as she cuts through towards Rodney Street, and he's suddenly aware of how quiet the night has become. Sounds from the bars he has left behind are muffled by rows of houses, and there's nobody but them on the street. Again, he asks her about the camera, where it is, and why she took it. It is unclear how Lorraine responds, but somehow the argument escalates and Richardson lashes out. He snaps like a frayed rope 
his hands grabbing her neck. She drops her food and fries scatter across the cobbles. Richardson doesn't remember when she stops fighting back, only that she does. The next moment he recalls with any real clarity is him standing over her when he's finished, looking down, registering what he's done. He can't be here. They could be discovered any moment. Her tights and underwear lie crumpled in a heap beside her, where he dropped them. Richardson bends down, retrieving them, sliding them inside his jacket. He takes her purse too, and with a quick look both ways up the street, runs away, heading towards his new flat on Greenhays Road. It's a little over a mile to his place, but instead of going in, he walks straight past the front door until he sees Sefton Park up ahead. Richardson walks into the tree line, takes out the tights and drapes them over a low hanging branch. He's about to do the same with the underwear, but has a change of heart and tucks them back in his jacket before heading home. The streets are deathly quiet now, and he has seen nobody else by the time he slides his key into the lock. Safely inside, he rummages in Lorraine's purse, a few coins, a door key, and a pawn shop ticket. She has recently traded in an item at Vickers Pawn Shop in the city center. Could it be his camera? He can't take the chance of turning up there now. Too many questions about how he came into possession of the ticket would ensue. He tears it up into tiny pieces, which he flushes down the toilet. The purse, too, can tie him to the murder. He cuts the leather into strips and throws it into the trash. He stares out of his kitchen window into the darkness, wondering how long it'll be before they come knocking. The next few days pass in a blur, and at some point, Richardson sits down and writes his confession. It's unclear what his intentions were in doing so, whether he did it intending for it to be read or whether it was just his way of processing what he had done. He anxiously awaits for the police to come knocking, carefully monitoring the story, meticulously clipping every article on the Lorraine Jacob case from the papers. But his day of reckoning never comes. He dies at the age of 77, having never answered for his crimes. But the story doesn't end with his death. When John Doherty discovers Richardson's confession in February 2008, it takes him a day to fully register what he's found. After a bit of research, he takes the envelope and all its contents to the Merseyside police who reopen the case immediately. While the full contents of the letter are not made public, Detective Superintendent Ian Kemble shares that it is an exceptionally detailed account of events leading up to Lorraine Jacobs's death, the murder itself, and Harvey Richardson's journey back to his flat. All in all, it stretches to nine pages, 26 paragraphs of neat handwriting capturing the last moment of a young woman's life. Although it seems obvious, given where it was found, that the letter was written by Harvey Richardson, the fact that it's unsigned and undated means there is still work to be done. Kemble calls in forensic handwriting experts to compare the contents of the envelope against a sample known to be Richardson's. Police are also able to arrange for a sample to be taken from Richardson's body before it is cremated, to compare it with evidence taken from Lorraine's body back in 1970. Kemble wants to be absolutely sure they have their man. He puts out a fresh appeal to the public. The response he gets is surprising, with many people coming forward, each with a piece of the puzzle some who saw Lorraine on the night she died, some who remember seeing Richardson the same evening, 
although nobody saw them together. In total, Richardson's note covers a period of around 90 minutes. Thanks to the witnesses who come forward, investigators are able to corroborate 90% of what he has written, although the full version of the note is never released to the public. They're also able to date the paper and ink used, confirming that Richardson had written his confession not long after the murder. It's no great surprise then when the results come back from forensics. DNA found on the underwear is confirmed as belonging to Lorraine Jacob. The verdict from the forensic handwriting expert follows soon after. Finally, after almost 40 years, Lorraine Jacob's family have a name to put to their pain. In an interview with a Liverpool Echo in May 2009, Lorraine's family states that though they are relieved that her killer has been unmasked, they do not feel a sense of closure. The fact that Richardson slipped away without any form of punishment does not sit well with them. Adding to their pain is the Crown Prosecution Service's confirmation that he would definitely have been charged and tried for her murder had he been alive. The family are dealt yet another disappointing blow when Merseyside police are forced to admit that they lost many of Lorraine's personal possessions and photographs that were loaned to them for identification purposes. The Jacob family are left to mourn the loss of a young woman taken in her prime, while Harvey Richardson's children try to come to terms with what their father has done. That's where the story should finish, but thanks to the leather satchel discovered by John Doherty, there's one loose end that police have yet to tie up. One that is still an open-ended investigation to this day. Buried in the satchel amongst the multiple articles about Lorraine's murder is one press cutting that sticks out about a different case entirely. Eighteen-year-old Jacqueline Ansel Lamb was on her way back to Manchester on Sunday, March 8, 1970, from a party in London. Her flatmate had gone ahead of her on the train, but Jackie did not have the money and told her flatmate she would just hitch a lift back. She was last seen thumbing a ride in the midst of a freak spring blizzard and never made it back to Manchester. Instead, her body was found six days later, face down in woodland by a farmer taking hay out to his sheep. Like Lorraine, she too had been strangled and sexually assaulted. What had made Harvey Richardson cut out this particular clip is unclear, but knowing what we now do about his obsession of press coverage of the Lorraine Jacob murder, this standalone article about Jackie Ansel Lamb is enough that police refuse to rule out a link. Chillingly, Jackie's murder is linked to yet another killing, that of 24-year-old teacher Barbara Mayo. Barbara had been hitching a ride to the town of Catterick in September 1970, a month after Lorraine Jacob was murdered. She was due to pick up her boyfriend's car from a garage when she went missing and had last been seen climbing into a car with a man around 4 p.m. that day. When they found her body days later, she too had been strangled and sexually assaulted. Based on the clipping, police decide to compare Richardson's DNA with that found on Ansel Lamb and Mayo. The results are inconclusive, but when pressed, Detective Superintendent Ian Kemble says that though they are not linking them to the Lorraine Jacob case at this time, they are not ruling it out. What we do have is a trail of breadcrumbs, starting in Harvey Richardson's house, an article connecting him to one murder 
the perpetrator of which is proven to have committed at least one more. Could Harvey Richardson have, in fact, been a serial killer that went undetected throughout his long, quiet life? Let's not forget there was no proof he had killed Lorraine Jacob for almost 40 years. But unless Richardson wrote more confessions that have yet to surface, we may never find out. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we travel back to the year 1957 in the sleepy town of Coatbridge, Scotland, where in the dead of winter, a little girl named Moira Anderson went missing, never to be seen again. Police hunt for her abductor, but no culprit is ever found. That is, until decades later, when a local woman begins to suspect her father, Alexander Gartshore, of the crime. As she investigates, an apparent conspiracy is unveiled that goes straight to the top. But the only way she can prove it is to get her aging father to admit to his crimes on his deathbed. Can she succeed where police have failed for decades? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs> <laughs>